Good evening, Hickory Grove, and welcome back to the Pastor's Class. We're glad to have you here tonight, and I hope you'll settle in as we spend the next half hour or so studying God's Word. Now, I hope you don't get too comfortable. I hope this exchange we've had now for the last several weeks leaves you longing for the time we'll be able to gather back again as a church and, of course, as a Pastor's Class too. But conversely, I also hope that you see a study like the study we've began just the last two weeks, a study of First and Second Thessalonians. I hope you see it as relevant and valuable for you. Perhaps during this season of your life where there's just so much uncertainty out there, perhaps the finances are uncertain in your home, your future clearly is unknown, Maybe you find yourself wondering, is there really any value to devoting a half hour or more each Wednesday night to opening up God's Word and studying a couple letters written by a man 2,000 years ago? What possible help could it offer me today? And if that is you, I pray tonight, I'm just asking that tonight you would lend me your ear. Indeed, you would hear from the God of the Word as we proclaim this letter to you. And I trust that you will see what God inspired Paul to write to that church at Thessalonica so many years ago. God did so with the understanding that His people would be hearing it proclaimed 2,000 years from that point, and it would be used to build up His church. And so my prayer tonight is that you will be built up. We're going to be studying, again, the book of 1 Thessalonians. Two weeks ago, we began this series, and believe it or not, we've actually already finished chapter 1. Tonight, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, so if you have a Bible, I invite you to take it and turn with me, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And tonight, we're just going to look at the first 12 verses of this chapter. And as we do, just be reminded a little bit of context. Paul wrote this letter after planting this church in Thessalonica, that's in modern-day Greece, he planted this church on his second missionary journey. This church was in the midst of immense suffering, uh, persecution, opposition. This was a pagan city. Paul plants this church, and evidently this church really took root. Like the parable of the sowers, this church found good soil, and it grew, and it grew, and it bore much fruit. And Paul left the city after uh, getting threatened with further persecution, and he wrote, at least two letters back to this church to encourage them, to edify them. And that's the letters we've been studying in this series, the letters 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And as we look at chapter 2, you're going to notice that Paul has already, in chapter 1, commended the faith of this new infant church. He's impressed by these new brothers and sisters in Christ. But something is happening in the city of Thessalonica. Paul's ministry that he had had happen just a few months prior, it's under attack, evidently. Paul was being accused of, well, hypocrisy. He was being accused of being a minister who had bad motives. He had come into the city just to get the city all riled up. He had come into the city just to get personal gain. And so Paul recognized, as you and I should, Paul recognized what was at stake. And so by, before I go any further, why don't we hear from Paul himself under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he defends his ministry before the church at Thessalonica. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, I invite you to read along with me and we'll go down through verse 12. 
For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you, it wasn't in vain. But though we had already suffered, and though we had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God. And this boldness was to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. You see, our appeal, it doesn't spring from error or impurity. It doesn't have any attempt to deceive. But listen, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with this gospel, so we speak. And we don't speak to please man. We have one audience. We speak to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But listen, we were gentle among you. He uses this unusual analogy. We were like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. You see, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God. Notice what else. We were ready to share with you our own selves because you've become so very dear to us. You see, you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil? Listen, we worked night and day so that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you this gospel of God. You're our witnesses, and really God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards, well, all of you believers. You see, you know how, just like a father would with his children, we exhorted you, we encouraged you, indeed we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Would you join me as we pray? And we'll pick apart these 12 verses Paul wrote the church at Thessalonica. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, now I ask that you would come and you would minister this word in a way I cannot. Take this word, O God, and implant it in the hearts of the brothers and sisters tuned in tonight. For the glory of your name, for the good of their witness, and for the strength of this church, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Nobody likes a hypocrite. Nobody. You know this to be true in your own life. You know this to be true in your own heart. We all hate it when, upon introspection, you can start noticing that your life has been somewhat of an empty shell. You have done a really good job at making the outward appearance look right and good and proper and satisfactory to all you know. But within, you know there is quite a dichotomy, a difference. There is something dark deep within. There's something hollow. Nobody likes a hypocrite. And to be charged with hypocrisy, to have that charge leveled against you, it's deadly. You know this, and Paul indeed knew this. This great Apostle Paul, commissioned by the Holy Spirit of God in the book of Acts chapter 13 to take the good news of Jesus to the Gentile nations all over the Roman Empire. Paul is going, at great cost he is going, and then he is being subjected to the attack, to the accusation that he is doing all of this for the wrong reasons. That he is actually in this for himself, that indeed he is a hypocrite. And Paul knew that the charge of hypocrisy is deadly to a Christian's witness. The charge of hypocrisy, it guts gospel ministry. Again, you know this to be true. How often have you found yourself uh, 
at odds within, even in a local church, when you start sniffing out hypocrisy, which inevitably you do because churches are made up of sinners, and there's a whole lot of them at any given local church, and the minute you see it, you tend to fixate on it. And you fixate on it to such a degree that the gospel starts to be undermined in your ears. You have trouble listening, whether it be in a Sunday school class. You have trouble ministering to one another in the course of various ministry opportunities. Hypocrisy can really mess a person up. It can damage a gospel ministry. Paul knew this, and that's why he responded with such fervor. Paul knew that for the sake of the gospel, he had to defend his ministry. Now, the good news is, Paul doesn't come at this accusation with an overreaction. In other words, we don't see Paul in some sort of self-serving, defensive posture. Paul in really a profound way, Paul stands confidently before the people of Thessalonica and he says, listen, let me testify why I was there, why I have ministered the way I've ministered. My life is an open book. Take a good look. I stand before you under the grace of God, blameless. For Paul demonstrated in word and in deed he demonstrates for you and for me and for the people of Thessalonica what an authentic ministry really looks like. Let that word authentic, authenticity, roll around in your mind for a moment. Those are words that are near and dear to many believers. Most people love authenticity. Don't you just love it? Don't you find it refreshing when you're around somebody, particularly a believer, who just seems genuine, who seems authentic in every sense of the word? Don't you find ministry more profound, more moving, more edifying when it's coming from somebody who strikes you as just flat, real, authentic? This was the Apostle Paul. And Paul, as he defends his ministry before this church of Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul demonstrates for you and for me four marks, as it were, of authentic ministry. So I think this is going to be helpful for us to take a step back while we're in quarantine and we're not being able to minister face-to-face -face with a lot of folks. Let's self-assess tonight and look in the mirror of God's Word and see, by God's grace, the authentic ministry Paul had before these people and then apply that to our own lives and start asking, Oh God, would you change this and that part of me and my ministry that I might stand before the people you have called me to as real, genuine, and authentic. And so if you're taking notes, I want you to mark this down. We're going to see four marks of an authentic ministry as demonstrated in the life of Paul. And I pray the Lord will use these marks to sanctify you, to build you up, to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. And so, number one, mark this down. We see this in verses one and two. The first mark of an authentic ministry that we see the Apostle Paul demonstrate is, number one, it's a persistent ministry. Look, if you will, at verse one. Paul says, listen, brothers, you know that we didn't come to you in vain. Here's why. We had suffered. We had been shamefully treated in Philippi. So let's stop for a second. 
Paul is reminding the church, listen, if you think my motives are bad, remember the cost I had paid before I got here. Before I came to the city of Thessalonica, I was in the city of Philippi where I was imprisoned, where that earthquake and the angel freed me from the prison and I was persecuted there along with Silas. And then we came here and then we were immediately persecuted by the people of Thessalonica too. Do you realize that when I came to your city, I did not come on a cloud? Do you realize the red carpet was not rolled out for me? I came at great cost. Nevertheless, I persisted. Moreover, I didn't just persist. I want you to see the nature of Paul's persistence in the midst of conflict. Watch in verse uh, 2. He says, after being shamefully treated at Philippi, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. In other words, Paul's saying, I, after being persecuted in Philippi, after being persecuted in Thessalonica, I persisted with persistent courage. I came and counted the cost, calculated the risk, and recognized that the gospel was worth it. Now, it's, that almost seems like a disembodied concept because I trust probably most of you watching this evening, and surely myself included, we have not encountered that type of persecution. I do recall as a child, uh, my parents gave me a book. It's a 16th century book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And that book has all these anecdotal tales of Protestants being persecuted for their faith. Now, as a young teenager, it was really an un it was a moving, unsettling book. The tales are not for the, uh, the lighthearted. I mean, this is some serious persecution they underwent. And I remember as a young believer, the Lord converted me when I was 12, watching, reading rather these tales and thinking, oh my word, Lord, would I ever be in a position in my life? Would my, will my faith ever be strong enough that I too could stand before this measure of persecution? These men, indeed Paul himself, demonstrated a persistent courage in the midst of opposition, and this marked the authenticity of their ministry. Take a step back and examine your own life and ministry. Again, surely these levels of persecution are not something we are accustomed to, but think of the various oppositions you have faced. You, you can fill in the blank. You know what this is like in your life. And consider the mark of an authentic, genuine, real, true ministry, as Paul is defending himself here, is one in which you persist despite conflict. You keep going. You don't throw in the towel when things get difficult. My word, nothing, nothing, nothing came easy for the Apostle Paul. That much is clear in the New Testament. Paul persisted. He persevered in the ministry. And would you ask that God would give you the strength and the faith to persist in the ministry He's called you to despite any lesser opposition you may feel. Paul persisted with courage, but there's really another layer to this and it's very closely related. He didn't just persist courageously, he also had persistent boldness. And that's kind of putting a finer point on what he means when he says he had courage. You know, when we say that Paul had courage, what we really mean is Paul came at great cost and risk and spoke with, as verse 2 says, boldness. Now, boldness can have a positive and a negative connotation. 
negatively, boldness can be kind of brash. It can just be, I don't care what you think, I'm just going to say it, kind of that punch in the jaw and we'll see where everything turns out. Paul's boldness was not like that. For Paul, and we see this routinely throughout the New Testament letters, Paul demonstrated a measure of humility before God and man that really is astounding to each of us. Paul comes with this measure of boldness that you could pretty much characterize as this. Paul stood in the face of opposition at great risk and personal cost to himself and said the truth because he feared God more than he feared man. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself. He's going to talk about this explicitly in a few verses. But rest assured, an authentic ministry is one that persists. And one way your ministry will persevere or persist is that you will make courage a part of your ministry. In other words, stop calculating. Stop making decisions in your ministry that are based off what you may gain or lose. Oh, Lord, would you eradicate from Hickory Grove any calculating ministry, one in which we are doing these things for what we may get out of them or what minimal cost it might incur us. May, Lord, you give our church men and women who are passionate for persistent ministry marked by courage and marked by holy boldness for the sake of the name of Jesus and the good of the gospel witness at Hickory Grove. That's number one, and we see this in verses one and two. The first mark of an authentic ministry is a persistent ministry. But as we keep going, you're going to notice a few other evidences and a few other adjectives to describe an authentic ministry. It's not just persistent. You'll notice in verses three through six, I think another word you could use to describe an authentic ministry is it's a pure ministry. Look, if you will, with me at verse three. He says, our appeal, it does not spring from error, it doesn't spring from impurity, and it doesn't have any attempt to deceive. In other words, what Paul is getting at right here is he's saying, listen, you're accusing me of coming at this with impure motives. You're accusing me of coming at this for some sort of personal gain. I'm attempting to deceive you, to trick you so that I may get something out of this. And Paul is defensive in this moment. And he's helping the folks understand, listen, I came at you as God is my witness. I came with pure motivation. I think that's the first way we could describe a pure ministry. I had pure motivation when I came to you. There wasn't a whole lot I could get out of this. I mean, I was coming into the belly of the beast, the pagan city of Thessalonica. What possible gain could I get from here? I came at this with pure motivation. And we see him kind of draw this out for us in verses 5 and 6. We're going to skip verse 4. Turn your attention with me to verse 5. He says, For we never came with words of flattery, Now, think about flattery. Flattery is telling somebody something in order that they may respond in kind, as opposed to affirmation. So an affirming word, that's a wonderful thing. Please affirm, brothers and sisters. To affirm is to say something true and right and positive for the sake of building that person up. Whereas flattery is saying something with a calculation. I'm saying something nice to you because I want you to like me more. I'm saying this positive thing about you so that you'll in kind say something nice to me. In other words, it has impure motives attached. And Paul's saying, listen, I didn't come with an impure motive. I did not come with words of flattery. Moreover, I didn't come with a pretext for greed. God is my witness, he says, meaning 
I didn't come at this thinking that I would somehow financially gain from this. My motives were pure. An authentic, genuine, real ministry is marked by one that has good, right, and proper motives. Motives make all the difference, Paul says. But there's another layer to this purity. It's not just pure motivation. This is going to sound a little strange, but you could also say a pure ministry is marked by pure confidence. Now, I don't mean that like pure uh, confidence. You can just do whatever you want. When we use that phrase pure confidence, we mean the right kind of confidence. In other words, confidence not rooted in yourself. Pure confidence in another. And we see this explicitly made clear in verse 4, because notice what he says. He says, just as we have been approved by God. When Paul says that he has been approved by God, here's what he means. Paul is making clear, my ministry has the stamp of approval from God Himself. I was commissioned by the Holy Spirit, and God as my witness has come and demonstrated before men and women alike that I am His ambassador. I am speaking on His behalf. I do not need to get my affirmation. I do not need to get kickbacks from anybody. Indeed, we're going to see in a few verses that Paul, in an attempt to be above reproach, He went above and beyond. Honestly, it was unnecessary. He went above and beyond to prevent any accusation that he was in this for the wrong reasons. Paul stands before these men of Thessalonica, before these newfound believers, these women in the city, and says, listen, I stand before you with a pure ministry. I have the right motivation. My motivation is an audience of one. We're going to get to that in a moment. And he is standing before these people saying, listen, I come before you with pure confidence. My confidence is not in myself. I have approval from God himself. I have been approved by God to be entrusted with this gospel. I speak not to please men. I speak to please God. Now, I know you've heard this before. I know you've heard the the saying, you ought to have an audience of one. Just let the weight of that statement sit on your shoulders, though, for a moment. It really is a profound reality to live and minister for an audience of one. As one of your fellow pastors, having the privilege to have served this church now for the last eight years and having had uh, the privilege to be in full-time pastoral ministry for much longer than that, well over a decade, I I just got to be frank with you. It is very difficult to minister before an audience of one. We live in a world in which we are all, regardless of our personality types, addicted to immediate response, addicted to affirmation, strongly desirous to have people pat us on the back, affirm us. And to see Paul with all sincerity stand before these men and women and say, I did not come to please you. I have but one person to please, and it is God Himself, and this has freed me from gaining my confidence in you. It's freed me from needing to be patted on the back. Oh, it makes me want to fall on my face before this book and plead that God would do a work in my heart. Indeed, if there is one area amongst many that 
indicts me as having an inauthentic ministry, it would be the murderous desire that creeps into my heart, and I trust a great many of your hearts, to not minister before God Himself, but to desire that you please men in the process. Let the Word be a mirror before your soul, and maybe tonight you just need to confess, as I do, oh God, grant me for the glory of your name a genuine, authentic ministry, one that is pure, pure in confidence, pure in motivation. That's number two. But if you're continuing to take notes with me, mark a third mark of an authentic ministry down, and we see this beginning in verse 7. Paul continues in his defense of himself, and in verse 7, he says, Listen, we were gentle among you. We were like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. We were desirously affectionate of you. We were affectionately desirous, I should say, of you. Paul is, is really trying to make clear this. Paul is saying an authentic ministry, it's not just persistent. An authentic ministry is not just pure. It's also, really for lack of a better word, it's personal. Meaning, real ministry is not a performance. Real, genuine ministry is inherently personal. It demands that you get in the middle of things. It demands that we get our hands dirty. It demands that you get in the trenches. A personal ministry is a real ministry. And we're going to see a few facets, at least three different facets, of what constitutes a personal ministry for the Apostle Paul. If you're taking notes, mark this down. One aspect of a personal ministry you could describe as personal sacrifice. It involves or requires personal sacrifice. And you see this, as I just read in verse 7, where Paul says, listen, we were gentle among you. We were like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, I have learned this acutely over the last seven weeks of quarantine. I have always been, I've always admired my wife. I've always been impressed by her. I love her dearly. But these last seven weeks have shown me the extent to which she sacrifices for our family. I come home after work every day and see the fruits of her sacrifice, but I don't see it in action throughout the day. A nursing mother, as verse 7 says, that imagery should call to each of our minds the sacrifice that mothers make. And Paul says, this is what I did for you. Just like a mother cares for her children, so have I come and personally cared for and ministered to you. And that's just a good reminder for all of us. I, I trust if you're watching tonight, you have probably served in some capacity at this church, and I, I su would suspect a great many of you are actively serving. Have you ever found that when somebody says, I'm called to a specific ministry, it tends to be something that, oh man, everything just lines up perfectly with their gifting. It tends to be something that can afford you a little bit of thanks publicly. In other words, let me use an illustration. I have never in all my years of ministry heard anybody ever come to me and say, you know, Kyler, I feel called to two-year-olds. <laughs> Do you want to know why? Because pretty much nobody feels uniquely equipped and called and gifted to work with two-year-olds. What I pray God would do in my heart and in yours, indeed in all of Hickory Grove, is that God would mark our church with a spirit and culture of sacrificial service. One in which, like Paul, we are all ministering one to another like a mother cares for her child. That our authentic, genuine, real ministry would be marked by a personal touch, indeed personal sacrifice. 
This is the type of ministry Paul presented before the people of Thessalonica. It involved personal sacrifice, but it also involved something else. If you look, notice with me in verse 8, it also involved what I would describe as personal transparency. Look with me at verse 8. He says, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God. Notice what he says. We were able to share with you our very selves. Now you want to talk about an added layer of sacrifice. It is very easy, and I'll be the first to admit this, it is very easy to sacrifice publicly in the confines of the church house, in the building. But man, it is a whole new layer to open up your home. It's a whole new layer to be on the phone for an hour. It's a whole new layer to have somebody come and sit in your living room for hours on end who's in the midst of a trial. It is very difficult to be vulnerable and transparent. Perhaps tonight, one of the reasons why that's the case for you is because you've been burned before. Transparency has, has gotten you in trouble. It's come back to bite you. Maybe you have found that uh, you are transparent and you don't get it back. And so it feels like a one-way street. If that's you, and I suspect there are several of you who would find yourself to be that way, I've experienced it. I would encourage you to submit yourself to God's Word and to see through the ministry of Paul that it is incumbent upon each of us to not minister professionally. We have not been called to compartmentalize our lives. And one of the reasons why is there is nothing more inauthentic than compartmentalization. How many of you as a spouse would be appreciative of that if your spouse compartmentalized your marriage and only did certain things at certain times but then completely ignored you at other times? I mean, of course, that doesn't make any sense. How much more should our gospel witness one to another be if we are only willing to open ourselves up in controlled environments? Oh, would God make me and you men and women who have personal transparency in our ministry. So you see a layer of personal sacrifice. You see a layer of personal transparency. But in verses 9 and 10, you're going to see a third facet of personal ministry. And let's, let's say it like this. Really, personal example. And personal example, this might be the biggest one of all. Look with me, if you will, at verse 9. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. Now let me talk about what I did amongst you. I worked night and day, and I did so so that I wouldn't be a burden to any of you while I proclaimed to you the gospel. In other words, Paul's saying, I wasn't sitting around drinking your coffee. I wasn't sitting around eating your bread. I was working my tail off and then ministering to you on the side because... I wanted to lead by example. Paul is making clear in verses 9 and 10, listen, you are my witnesses, verse 10, and God is also that we were holy before you. We were righteous before you. We were blameless before you. Our conduct was above reproach before you because we wanted you to see that we didn't have a prepackaged message to just throw at your feet. We wanted to lead by example and show that the gospel has authentically, genuinely transformed our hearts, and so we cannot help but live it before you. And so, take a step back with me and self-examine. Do you have a personal ministry at Hickory Grove or in your own, even in your own home that is marked by sacrifice, that's marked by transparency, and, and let's get to the one that's close, that'll hit closest to home, that's marked by personal example? Do you practice what you preach? Do you do as you say? Now, lest 
there be too much heap of scorn and guilt and shame uh, put upon your shoulders this evening, I, I want you to know that if you feel guilty by that, you're in good company. Who amongst us does not? But it should drive you to your knees in repentance and pleading that God would do such a work in your life that your life, your very life, would reflect the testimony you bear on your lips. I pray that prayer more than any other prayer in my life. I pray, oh God, might my life reflect the testimony I bear as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a friend. Oh, would I live the gospel in addition to proclaiming it. May we be marked as men and women who lead by example. That's number three. The third mark of an authentic ministry is a personal ministry. But let's conclude our time this evening by looking at one fourth and final mark or evidence of an authentic ministry. Number four, we're going to see this in verses 11 and 12. You can put it down like this. The fourth mark, you could call it a passionate ministry. Passionate. Look with me, if you will, at verse, four, uh, verse 11. For you know how just like a father with his children, we exhorted, we encouraged, we charged you. Now those words are loaded with emotional import. He didn't say we suggested, we dialogued, we conversed. These are all verbs that should imply for us a measure of passion, a measure of energy and emotion. He says, listen, just like a dad would his children, I have exhorted you, I have encouraged you, and I have charged you. Paul is saying, I came before you with all of my might and all of my being, and I encouraged, exhorted, and charged you on two fronts. And these are the two aspects of a passionate ministry that should mark authenticity as a believer. The first evidence of a passionate ministry is he says basically this, I came at you with a passion for holiness. Because notice what he says after saying he encouraged, exhorted, and charged. He says he did these things that we might walk, verse 11, or verse 12 says, that we might walk in a manner worthy of God. When Paul says that you might walk in a manner worthy of God, Paul is basically meaning, I am not just charging you to believe. I am charging that you might live in light of what you believe. In other words, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. He's going to tell us that in his next letter. He says the old is gone and the new has come. Paul is making clear to us, listen, if Christ saves you, he changes you. You are not just justified before God. You are presently being sanctified before him. He's changing you. And so Paul is exhorting them with great passion. You must walk in a manner worthy of the calling God has called you to. You must walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul has a passion for holiness. And I wonder, do you have that similar passion both for yourself and for those you minister to? You know, it's very easy to fall into a pattern of ministry that devalues holiness. It's, it's really easy to emphasize almost exclusively relationship, fun, camaraderie, as wonderful as those things may be, at the expense of holiness, because holiness is not natural to us. Holiness doesn't come easily. Ch being changed into the image of Christ, it's not something that you just do. It inevitably involves confession and repentance, accountability, 
all of which come at a cost. And so our natural MO as believers is not to pursue holiness. We have to intentionally pursue it. Our natural MO is to pursue, well, just being liked and affirmed uh, and having a good friendship with another believer. Oh, would you see that a real, genuine, authentic ministry is marked by a passion for holiness, a desire to see everybody around you grow in grace. How wonderful would that testimony be if on my deathbed, men and women would testify that that man, he caused me, he spurred me to grow in grace. May that be the abiding epithet for each of us, that we are men and women who are passionate for holiness. But there's one final uh, thing he kind of dangles out there at the end, and we're going to see him come back to this later in this letter. For the final passionate aspect of ministry Paul advocates for, in terms of an authentic ministry, is this. Paul says, you and I, we really ought to be passionate not just for holiness. We really ought to be passionate for heaven. Now, the reason I think Paul says that, and let me read it to you in verse 12. He says, he didn't just call you to walk in a manner worthy of God. The end of verse 12 says, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. God is calling us to something beyond today and tomorrow. He is calling us beyond our lives. He is calling us, here's a theological word, He's calling us to something eschatological, something that has to do with the end times, far beyond us. In other words, God is calling you and me to live with eternity in mind. He's calling us to live in light of eternity. And oh, how difficult it is to do that. We are so myopic. We are so nearsighted. We only look at what's right in front of us and we fail to see the long game at play. If you and I could, by the work of the Spirit, live in such a way that we live with eternity in mind, oh, all the things of this world would just start fading. All the troubles and trials before us, the persecutions Paul had, the confrontations and opposition you're experiencing now, they'd become so small if you would just raise your sight a little. If you would, as that great old song said, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, all the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. This was the ministry of the Apostle Paul, a man marked by unusual, profound authenticity, a man who persisted in the midst of opposition, a man whose ministry was pure before man, woman, and child. His motives were pure. Indeed, his confidence was in God, a pure confidence in God and not himself. A man whose ministry was personal. It involved sacrifice, personal sacrifice, personal transparency. He was an open book. There was nothing to hide. A man whose ministry was really led by personal example. Oh, behold this minister, the Apostle Paul, who lastly demonstrated for you and for me real, genuine, passionate, blood-earnest ministry. And may God do that work in my heart and yours for the glory of His name and for the good of this church. But let's conclude our time by just reflecting. Your authenticity before others is only as good as your authenticity is before God in private. And so tonight I want to call you to pray with me. And as we do, 
I would invite you to silently confess before God all the various ways that you have not been before Him, all the various ways you live without reference to Him. Oh, plead with Him to do a work in your life and watch Him do it. Paul was a murderer. He was zealous for it with hatred against the Christians. And watch what God did in his life. He can do it in yours. May God change you and me and all at Hickory Grove that our ministry might stand as an open book before all the city of Charlotte as genuinely, truly authentic for the glory of His name and for the good of our gospel witness. Would you join me as we pray to that end? Our Father in heaven, I do ask right now that you would do a work in the hearts of those listening in, that you would minister in a way I cannot. Bring us to a point of confession and repentance, and God, mold us into the image of Jesus. Thank you for the exemplary ministry of the Apostle Paul, and we ask that you would make us men and women who are authentically persistent, pure. Oh Lord, would you make us authentically personal in our ministry and passionate. And we ask this in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
Hey, what's up? This is my Clint Presley example. Hey, hey, hey now, hey, hey, hey. I can only imagine. Oh, man. All right, let's begin. Well, good evening, Hickory Grove, and welcome back to the pastor's class. We're delighted to have you joining us again this evening. I, I must say, I hope you're not getting too comfortable. You know, this, this blessing we have to be able to engage one another through the internet, well, it is a, it's a blessing to be able to... Okay, I'm going to start over. <laughs> <laughs> this blessing is a blessing. Yeah, this blessing is a blessing. Anything you need to adjust? And also, I picked up my Bible for reasons that defy understanding. Yeah. Yeah. All right. 